How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the church it as suspicious? Trying to hold the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers, I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual Do you understand how ridiculous that is when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the culture how is that actually? It seems like so much of the church Anti-critical they are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the second episode of The Church Needs Therapy. This week, I am talking about why the church is so scared of change, right? The inevitable dynamic when people go to therapy, when people think about transformation, when people think about real change is that there is going to be resistance and there's going to be a part of us that's actually scared to change. It's so crazy. There's nothing we want more than real transformation and nothing we're more terrified of than real change. Have you ever noticed that before? So often we resist that which we desire the most. Let that sink in. We resist that which we desire the most. Think about it. What do we desire? Deep connection and relationship. Then someone invites us into community spaces to actually make connections and we immediately say no and avoid those calls. What do we desire? Intimacy. What do we resist? Any form of vulnerability that actually opens our hearts up to have the possibility to experience that kind of intimacy, right? We want change, but we're so scared because we don't realize the path to get there what involve, what's involved in that path is what we are really scared of. So that's what this is about. It's about the church needing to change. It's about the church needing to grow. It's about the church refusing to stay stuck in the same place out of fear, out of comfortability, or whatever it is. And, you know, talk to, when the church goes to therapy and we talk about why are you so scared of change, it's about her receiving the permission from the Spirit to open up to let go and to keep moving forward. <clears throat> now, I heard a guy tell a story about his experience when he saw the Mona Lisa at the Louvre for the first time. And he says before he went into the Louvre, he saw another man outside who was taking care of the ground. So it was a gardener who's pruning the tree, trimming the hedges, doing all kinds of work. And he was just watching the man and he was just paying attention to how much care he took to make sure the plants, the trees, that every, his whole job was to make sure everything kept growing and developing. Then he goes inside and he finally gets to the, to the part of the museum where the Mona Lisa was. And this man said that his main sort of visceral experience was how protected and intense the environment was. Because first, you're standing way back, and it's not that big of a painting. So everyone's back. You're behind these, you know, ro it's roped off. Then he says there's so many security guards. But he said this one main security guard 
was so intense and he felt watching him so aggressively that he said he started to feel guilty even though he didn't do anything wrong. Right? You ever have that moment where you feel guilty? You're like, dude, just just chill, just act normal. You're like, you are normal, but just act normal. Like it, it took me 10 years after I was 18 to 28 to not get jolted with a massive amount of anxiety every single time I saw a cop. Because from 13 to 18, I could basically be arrested on site any moment when I saw the police because I was always high or I'd been drinking, I had drugs on me or paraphernalia, or I had things bagged up because I was selling weed. Like there was just any moment I'm driving, I'm going to get pulled over. Any moment I saw a cop, my whole life could change in that moment. And for the next 10 years, even though I was like sober and I was clean, I didn't have anything on me, I would see a cop and just get super jolted. I'd be like, Kev, there's no drugs in the car, bro. You're not high. Just the worst you can get is a ticket. And I'd be like, man, and it would take me a while to come down. But he said it was so, the protection was so intense, he says he felt like guilty even though he didn't do anything. And as I reflect on his story, I think about the security guard at the Mona Lisa and the gardener outside had two very, very different jobs. The security guard's whole job is to protect, to make sure no one touches it, to make sure no one changes it, because to change it would be to alter its value or to destroy it. So his whole job is protecting and making sure nothing changes. The other job outside was about growth and about change and about development and about removing anything that was getting in the way of further growth. See, one job was about protecting, one was about cultivating. One job was about defending, the other was about developing. One job was about guarding, the other job was about growing. So they had two very different jobs. And if they confused their roles, they would end up doing their job in a completely inappropriate way. Now, when it comes to the church and our understanding of God and how we relate to God and how we think about God and how we talk about God, that is the question. Are we guards or are we gardeners? Do we protect that which is never supposed to change or do we cultivate that which is always growing? Are we defending the past or are we developing the future even as we build and include the past? This is important for how churches live and think and be in the world today. Are we a static community that is supposed to work really hard to get all of the right answers into a tight little system and then spend the rest of our lives defending that system? Or are we a dynamic community that is always growing, always evolving, always changing, and always ready to welcome our next step of growth in any moment? So this is the church needs therapy. So one of the major issues that's sort of a larger umbrella issue for all the specific ones as we take the church to therapy is that too often she acts as a guard when in reality she has been designed to be a gardener. She's been created to develop and to cultivate, but she she's always protecting and defending what was. 
And here's the thing, change is scary for everybody. We all are somewhat scared of making big changes. We're scared of losing control. We're scared of a loss of security. We're scared of entering into the unknown, right? We all have some fear of change. But the church, I feel for many reasons, I'm going to focus on one right now. The church is terrified of change. And one of the reasons why that's so intense is too often she over-identifies. Now it's unconscious, but she over-identifies her beliefs about God with God. And those aren't the same thing. Your beliefs about God are not the same as God, as God is, which is always absolute mystery. See, your current understanding of God is not actually God. It's just the way you see God right now. This doesn't mean it's completely inaccurate. It doesn't mean that the version of God we carry within us doesn't reflect some of the truth of God. But what it means is in humility, it's us acknowledging our view of God never reflects the fullness of God. So anytime a person or a church says God, what they are referring to is their current understanding of God, which from my perspective should be changing and evolving and different five years from now if you're actually awake and growing. Anytime you name God, you're simply naming your understanding of God. And that's not a that's not a bad thing. That's just the condition of the human experience. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we always see through a glass darkly. But if you don't recognize this out of humility and you completely associate your understanding of God with God, that is a heavy burden to bear. Think about that. If you believe like this or live like this as a church, then to change is absolutely terrifying. Because think about it. To change can feel like you're betraying God, like you're losing God, like you're disappointing God, like your faith is completely crumbling in God. This is why the church so often is so defensive and so angry, and so uptight, and so rigid, and so unflinching, which by the way, those are all signs of emotional immaturity. Flexibility, adaptability, openness to new ideas, these are all signs of emotional and spiritual maturity. But rigidity, inflexibility, don't even know if that's a word, meaning you won't flex, These are signs of a person who's coiled up, bound up, tight, and trying to hold on for dear life out of deep feelings of insecurity. Which is why if you challenge some, sometimes if you challenge the church's beliefs in God, they experience it as you actually challenging God. That's why they get so nuts sometimes. This is one of the reasons why people in the church get so defensive and angry when you challenge their beliefs, ask hard questions, or express doubt. Because when you do that, they experience that as you challenging and questioning the very nature of God, when in reality, you're just questioning their understanding of God. 
It's scary to embrace change when you feel like it's your Christian duty to defend God. And you associate your views of God with God. See, so often the church feels like it's defending God when in reality it's just defending their particular way of seeing God in this historical moment, which is supposed to be growing and changing. This is why the great mystic Thomas Merton says, Our idea of God tells us more about ourselves than about him. It's so convenient when, for, every, for so many people, their God always seems to hate whoever they hate, is against whoever they're against, he wants to get rid of whoever they want, want to get rid of. It's amazing how that lines up. Because Merton says, Your understanding of God so often tells you more about you than it does about God. And that's why it needs to be tr- growing and changing. Now, Mark 7, 6 through 9. Jesus is speaking to some of the most well-respected and powerful religious leaders of his day. So think pastors, priests, high-ranking people. The ones people on TV, think today, people on TV, people with book deals, people who are listening to your sermons, like these kinds of people, right? Verse 6, Jesus replied, or he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. He uses their own prophets from their own sacred text to challenge them, which is so genius. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. What a line that is. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. So he's looking at the religious leaders. He quotes their own prophet and says, by the way, when you read that, you think you're the one who is sort of looking at the other people who who this negative thing is being said about. And Jesus turns around and says, when Isaiah said that, he's really speaking about how you all are right now. It's so genius. So you can see why in multiple places in the Gospels, the religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus. They want to silence Jesus and they even want to kill Jesus, which he eventually is killed. But here's the fascinating thing about this text. Jesus is challenging their view of God and their understanding of humanity and reality. Jesus is not saying he doesn't believe in God. Some irony there. Jesus is challenging their version of God and is inviting them to see God in a new and developed and evolved way. Jesus comes along challenging, subverting, and calling people beyond their current understanding of God. He's not telling people not to believe in God. He's showing people an image of God that is fuller and more real and more beautiful and more faithful to their scriptures. So by challenging their view of God, he's not calling people away from God. He's actually calling them closer to God, which as a quick side note, whenever the church wants to write people off as heretical or liberal or dangerous, I'm not saying all the time, but oftentimes when the church looks at people as calling people away from God, they may not have the eyes to see that these people are actually calling humanity closer to God. 
See, Jesus was seen as a threat, not because he didn't believe in God. It's because he didn't believe in their version of God. There was so much resistance and fear from the religious establishment of Jesus's day. And I see that same resistance and fear in the church today. So defensive, so angry, so against things, so unopened to listen, so unwilling to repent. Just like those, and just like those religious leaders, it's possible to be in the face of the God showing you a new way and to resist that God. You can, you can resist God in the name of God. Think about that. You can resist the movement of God in the name of God. That is what we call irony again. I remember there was a story I was at, not really like a big conference, but some sort of gathering, like a relig- Christian religious gathering, I think five years ago, maybe 2014 or 15. It was in Orange County, I believe, or LA somewhere. And it was called Unfolding Spirituality. Definitely much more progressive voices there than a lot of the church I'm referring to is probably used to, or should I say comfortable with. And after a few sessions, I went with my wife, one of my best friends, and another guy who I knew who I think was a pastor at a church. I know he's a pastor at a church now. And we were there, we're having dinner, we're having a drink. And I go off on this like insane, epic rant where I'm just going nuts, right? Who knows what I'm saying? And at the, as I'm doing it, I see that this guy I'm talking to, this pastor has like a little smirk on his face. And when I'm done, he says this classic thing to me. He's like, you know what, Sweeney? He says, when you speak, it's like you're taking me on this beautiful, like I hop on a bus with you. I go on this beautiful journey. He's like, and everything seems so free and everything seems so open and everything seems so good. And it just, the journey you take me on, I look out the window and everything looks so amazing. But then he finishes by saying, but I just can't go there with you. And I'm like, why? If it's so beautiful, if it looks so good, why aren't you willing to go there with me? What are you scared of? That you won't fit back into your church, that you'll lose your job, that you'll be seen as different, that you've gone too far, that God's mad at you. If the truth, if you sense the truth of the scriptures and the spirit is leading you in this direction, but it's so different from what you've ever known, why would you be scared if God's the one leading you? Maybe this is why Richard Rohr says the last experience of God becomes the greatest obstacle to the next experience of God. And you could interchange that. Your last experience of church becomes the greatest obstacle to your next experience of church. The way things have always been is not the way they're always going to be. But if you get stuck on the way things have been, you will miss out on where all of this is going. It's a problem if the church is not changing. First of all, if you're a community who says you're all about change and you're the most resistant to change, you could lose a little bit of credibility with people, first of all. But I also think for a church that's not willing to open themselves up to, to recognize the world's changing, that perhaps the Spirit is inviting them to change as well, when they're holding on to an old view of God and reality, what happens is the church ends up preaching to a world that no longer exists. I remember going to a Christian conference seven years ago here in Hawaii just because some friends were connected with it. 
After listening to some of the sessions, this is the question I had. Is the church preparing people to manage the church in the 20th century? Are you preparing people to innovate and lead into the 21st century? And I knew the answer for this church when I heard everything they were saying. Because instead of being the place where we lead people towards the leading edge of humanity, we can end up getting in the way of all of that progress. A church that is not changing is a church that is dying. Now, let's think about this this little 200 years exercise. If you were to go back 200 years from now in a time machine, we would all be sitting on this veranda and we'd be listening to this guy in his beautiful in his beautiful plantation home and we'd be like, oh, look at these pillars, they're so beautiful. And he'd bring out some iced tea and he would lead us in a Bible study. He'd be like, man, this guy's got insight into the scripture. This guy is so hospitable. This is awesome. And then we would look out and see a field of slaves and we would all be in shock and awe and upset and angry and wondering how he could justify being a Christian and a pastor and have all these slaves, and he would see nothing wrong with it. If we went back 200 more years to 1620, we would see some of the first slaves brought to the United States of America, and we would see Christians in charge of organizing all of that, and we would be in awe, and we would be in shock, and we would be angry, and we'd be wondering how they could justify it, and the people there would see no issue with it. And we can go back to 1420. We can go back to 1220. Anybody can go back 200 years before where they were and be in shock at some of the things that Christians justifiably lived out that we all see as disgusting, repulsive, and impossible to do if you are a Christian. Which raises a really interesting question. I wonder in 2220, what people will be looking back at right now in 2020 and being like, really? As the church, they still believe that? As the church, they excluded them as the church? That's what they really thought about the planet? That's how they treated the planet? Like, that's a very humbling thing to truly think about. But here's why it's so important. You can look back every 200 years and see an evolution on how the church thinks. I mean, is that evolution supposed to stop at some point because what we finally have God figured out? Right, Vincent J. Donovan says, The day we are completely satisfied with what we have been doing, the day we have found the perfect, unchangeable system of work, the perfect answer, never in need of being corrected again, on that day we will know we have made the greatest mistake of all. So the day you think you have it is the day you're done. So you see that historically, and what's even more fascinating, and I love this, is you don't only see this evolution of thought in the history of the church, but you actually see it in the Bible itself. So let me read these passages. Deuteronomy 23.1 No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So in around, let's just say, 1300 B.C., there was rules in the Jewish law where no eunuchs who had been castrated, look it up, were allowed to enter into the religious assembly. Isaiah, now let's read Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. This is probably, let's just say, five to 600 years later. 
Then the scriptures say, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And now in Acts 8, there's this famous story of Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is going along a road. He hears, and he hears somebody reading from the scroll of Isaiah. As they're riding along, he stops them. He interprets Isaiah for them. Philip, who is this eunuch from Ethiopia, says, you know, what will prevent me from being baptized on the spot? Nothing. Philip baptizes him. He kind of disappears, which is weird. And that's how the story ends. So think about those three moves in the Bible. No eunuch is ever welcomed in the assembly. To if they keep my covenant, they'll be giving an everlasting name. To being baptized welcome full citizenship in the kingdom of God on the spot. And let's just say roughly there's five to 600 years between those moments. This is the moment for some people where their brain starts to explode if they've never seen that before. But what's so powerful, and to me what's so liberating, is you actually see the scriptures themselves evolving in its view of God and humanity. Because what's happening here? Is the Bible contradicting itself? What are we supposed to do when we acknowledge that the scriptures are the source of truth, and yet you have the people writing it saying that God wants different things? Is God changing his mind? Does God change? Because when you see this, I would argue that God does not change. But what we see is that it's actually humanity who is changing along the way, and that is reflected in different historical moments, even in the Bible. See, it's not God who changes in the Bible. It's us. And the thing is, the church is supposed to be changing. It's supposed to be growing. It's supposed to be evolving in her understanding of God. Think about if you were a person who journals, let's just say you were, or let's just say you did. If you went back seven years ago, and, or let's say 10 years ago, and saw what you were writing about love and God and relationships and humanity, don't you think you probably would be a little embarrassed at some of the things you were writing? You're like, God, if I just, if I'm a good little boy or girl and I don't drink too much this year, is this the year you're going to like, you know, give me a partner or whatever? Or... If I do this, then this happens. If I do this, then you do this as if we can control God or the way we viewed other people, the way we viewed whoever it was. Don't you think you might be a little shocked at what you believed about God, the way you really viewed humanity, the way you viewed reality? Like every every three years, you should be able to look back at your journals and be like, wow, I can't believe I used to think that. It's okay. There's no judgment, but I've grown so much. Someone looked at your journals. They might they might think, wow, God's changing. No, you're changing. Humanity's changing. And God is that which is ahead of us, calling us forward into that change. 
The Bible shows us a group of people who are all on a journey of discovery with God. It is not God who is changing. It's the people who are changing and growing and allowing their understanding of God to evolve. And although so much of the church sees theological change as dangerous, what I would say is it's not dangerous if your view of God is changing. It's dangerous when it isn't. Come on. One more thing about the Apostle Paul before we finish. Acts 22.3. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, who was this like really well-known rabbi at the time, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. He's basically like, I'm the Jew of all Jews. Nobody's studied more. No one's more zealous. No one's more intense about this than I am. Galatians 1, 13 through 16. After his encounter with the resurrected Christ, Paul says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. He's saying, I was so zealous for God that anybody who believed differently from me, namely the church, I was trying to destroy them, kidnap them, kill them. He was involved in terrorist acts. He's a wild guy. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. So Paul's saying, I was the most certain. I was the most passionate. I knew the scriptures the best, but when God revealed himself to me, it required me to rethink and reimagine how I viewed God in order to be faithful to God. It's like through the resurrected Christ, the lights were turned on and Paul could see with more clarity and his view of God was radically changed. Like the church was birthed out of people who were allowing their understanding of God to be radically changed. Paul went from a narrow and exclusive view of God that came from his tradition to a wider and more inclusive view that was revealed in Jesus. And here's what Paul shows us. You don't have to change your belief in God in order to change your beliefs about God. Do you feel the difference there? You don't have to change your belief in God in order to change your beliefs about God. I would also say it like this. Your picture of Jesus should change, but the presence of Christ remains You can continuously allow your understanding of God to grow and still be absolutely deeply and transformatively connected with the spirit of God that is always fully present in this world, in our awareness and all around us. Changing how you view God does not change your ability to be loved deeply by God. It's just the humility to know that we're supposed to keep going. The church has been evolving from its inception in the first century, and we aren't supposed to stop now. You don't honor the tradition by staying the same. You honor it by knowing your history, being faithful in the present, and building and innovating and leading it into the future. And that includes how you think theologically. That includes how you view God, how you view humanity, how we view ourselves and our world and our future. 
Right? Picasso says, if you want to preserve tradition, don't wear your grandfather's hat. Have grandchildren. And that's so brilliant because if you want to honor the tradition you're a part of, you don't just repeat what they did. You give birth to new things knowing you are a part of the same legacy when they were in their time giving birth to new things as well. This church has at its core Jesus, a radical reformer of how people see God, and Paul, the first leader who completely reimagined how he saw God, transitioned, repented, and reframed his understanding of God to lead this entire new movement. And a church, and what we have so often is a church who in the name of Jesus and with the teachings of Paul, resist change and keep fighting for everything to stay the same. Right? In the name of the one who challenged the status quo, the church fights as hard as it can to maintain the status quo. In the name of one who kept challenging and subverting how people view God, the church keeps on continuing to resist that same spirit of Jesus who's challenging and subverting how we see God today. Do you see like you, the church and therapy, you can't be scared to change. That's what this is all about. And the last thought for individuals who are changing, I want, I want to say this. Your growth is going to offend people. Your freedom is going to scare people. And your change is going to challenge people. The people who still see the same, the people who are spending their lives defecting, de defecting, <laughs> defending and protecting, as your view of God and humanity evolves, gets wider, more inclusive, etc., people might be offended, people might be scared, people might be worried about you, people might be concerned, people might sit you down. I remember whatever year it was in Imagine, a couple kids in their 20s told me this old pastor they knew from years before, after they were at Imagine for like a year or so, called a meeting with them and sat him down to make sure they were okay. Imagine is the church my wife and I leave. So this person was concerned, what, for their salvation? Because they were a part of Imagine. He was worried, are they going off course? Are being, they being led astray? When if you talk to them, I think they would say they actually were being liberated. They actually were seeing with more clarity. They actually were seeing God in profound and wider ways. Sometimes what you see the path getting wider and other people see you as going off course. So you're going to be misunderstood. You will be misrepresented. It's really hard when it happens a lot of those things people say might hurt, but that hurt is always temporary for the cost of more freedom and more joy and a deeper life with God. And I want that for you. And I want that for the church as a whole. So for the church, you don't have to be scared to change. Change is how this whole movement was built from the very beginning. Change is how it's continued to evolve and it's supposed to keep changing today. So that is the second episode of The Church Needs Therapy, Why We're So Scared of Change. I hope you tune in for the next one, because I believe the next one, we're taking the church to therapy, and we're going to talk about her weird and toxic obsession with Donald Trump. <laughs>